Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. We're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are. We are. Welcome to our <laughs> hundredth... What? Why are you laughing? I'm just laughing at the at life. At life? I thought you looked in a mirror or something. Well... I, I I am looking at your face right now. <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! Jokes on you! I'm holding a mirror. Whoa! <laughs> we have a You're lot of sad. Fun. You just cut this out, which is which is always. I'm not gonna cut this out. I'm gonna keep oh, this good. in. Actually, good. This I'm gonna keep good. in solely because good. you said I was gonna cut it out. <laughs> 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 I'm working my radio laugh. <laughs> you, you've got a good radio laugh. You sound like a, like a like a guy who's on like a game show, which is fitting for today's episode. Fitting for today's episode. But before we get into today's episode, which if you know how to read, you probably would know what it is. But uh, uh, we're gonna talk about games that we've been playing recently. That's so, right, uh, Zach. What have you been playing recently, Seth? Recently, I've been playing Somari: The Adventurer. It was a game released in 1994 published by Supertone and developed by Hummer Team. Uh, Hummer Team, I think we briefly mentioned before, but they are a company that was led by Taiwanese game developer Hummer Chang. Chang had previously worked for another company called Sachin, uh, which was an unlicensed game developer that operated out of Taiwan from 1988 to 2007. Somari stars the titular Somari the Adventurer, who is a red hat wearing, mustachioed plumber who can run at incredibly fast speeds. Somari must stop the evil Dr. Robotnik from developing robots out of his woodland friends. Does this sound familiar to you, Seth? It, it does. It sounds like the plot of Sonic the Hedgehog, except the character is Mario. That's exactly what Somari is. It's a D-make bootleg of Sonic the Hedgehog for the Sega Genesis, but featuring Mario on the Famicom or the NES. The game actually plays fairly decently, despite being completely D-made to run on the NES, though there are some issues with control. The music is also particularly garbled sounding. It just kind of sounds messy, though apparently there's a couple stories that Hummer Chang, who did also all the music for his games, had to recreate the entire soundtrack of Sonic by memory after he listened to it over the phone. So that might be why it sounds kind of garbled, because he was listening to it over the phone. (laughs) But I actually recently acquired an original copy of Somari, partially thanks to our good friend of the pod, Barry, who helped us out with our indie dev lounge episode that we did with his company premium edition games uh barry had privately messaged me letting me know that there was an ebay listing for samari and i bought it and i got my copy and i after checking it out when i received it i can verify it is a original 1990s copy of the game which are not super common at least on like your standard ebay marketplace it's it's one of those games that because it's bootleg the game doesn't even show up on things like price charting and stuff so it's really really hard to get an actual value for this thing but it's cool to have and it's something that i've wanted since i was a little kid so it fills a little niche in my life uh where did it come from argentina um and the actual seller from argentina was wicked nice he actually got in touch with me after i placed the order to let me know that there was like slight damage on the cartridge and if i was still interested in picking it up so uh he got very high remarks in my rating of him uh so i've been i've been playing a little bit of that now that i have a i mean i've i've been able to play it prior 
Um, it's a game that's been easily available to find on ROM sites and stuff like that, and you can play it via emulation. But this is the, the first time I've been able to play it on real hardware, which is kind of a neat little thing to do using an actual like original cartridge, not a reproduction cartridge. So it's uh, kind of cool and uh, a neat little piece that I now have in my Museum of Oddities. Um, and if you're interested... I did post pictures of Somari on our Instagram of the cartridge. So um, anyone listening to this episode can check out our Instagram and see what the cartridge looks like. That's fun. Yeah, it's a it's a fun little, it's an interesting game. Perhaps we will play some of it on stream. Uh, so Seth, what have you been playing recently? I assume not bootleg games. Not bootleg games and not auto worlds. <laughs> <laughs> I've been up. Uh, actually back and playing crusader kings 3 because they released a dlc called the royal court dlc the royal court dlc was released eight days ago at the time of recording it was released on february 8th of 2022 it's a big dlc for crusader kings 3 there's kind of like little dlcs for crusader king 3 and there's big dlc this is the first big dlc the rest are usually like vanity packs so like colors from a foreign empire or whatever the crusader kings 3 just to remind everyone is a 4x strategy game that takes place in kind of like the middle ages it's either you either have a start time of 938 or 1066 the royal court expansion adds depth to the cultures in the game it also adds an inventory system it adds kind of a uh, there's a newer combat system for dueling people and you also get a royal court that you can populate with many positions. I also really enjoy that you can now go in and when you build your new, when, if you build your own character, you can customize your banner and you can actually just build it instead of previously in the game, you had to just keep clicking random images until you got to one that you liked. Now you can just build it to be what you like uh, from the beginning. So I decided that I was going to play as the Danes, the King of Denmark. I was clicking random for my name and it stopped at odd as a name, which is a Danish name. Like ODD? Like ODD, yep. And that's what I named my king. Oh, and I changed his house name to be Odium. So he is King Odd Odium of the Odium dynasty. And he names all of his children Odd as well. Well, only the boys. So he has, you know, Odd 1, Odd 2, Odd 3, Odd 4, Odd 5, and like Martha. Who, I guess, would That's be good. the real odd one out. <laughs> Crusader Kings uh, sometimes has some fun interactions, uh, especially with your vassals. So the game will trigger events with your vassals, and it doesn't always know exactly, like, who your vassal is. They just kind of know what your relationship is. And my character ended up picking up a dog whose name was Maggie after our departed dog. And then Aww, he picked up a, another cute. dog named Maggie, too, because the first Maggie ran away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I just I'm going to iterate on Maggie until the Maggie 2 runs away. I'll get Maggie 3. So King Odd has a dog and it triggered an event to have one of his vassals to interact with his dog. The event decided to pick my vassal, who just also happened to be my child, Odd 2 
not odd one. So it said, ah, vassal for odd two, you're going to interact with the dog. The game didn't really acknowledge that the vassal was four years old. (laughs) So the pop-up showed a small child and the dialogue was like, your vassal, Duke Odd II, has come across your dog. And he says, my lord, what a wonderful dog you have. I'm like, my four-year-old is saying this? Dang, your four-year-old is (laughs) well-versed. I was like, damn, no wonder he's a duke we had a full-on conversation about my dog because that was the the event triggered and then i was like you're four and also my child but i guess it's great though because he just runs the country without really any help he's just like this four-year-old duke who runs the country which means the king runs the country uh, which is why he's the duke anyway (laughs) but yeah so that's uh crusader kings 3 the royal court expansion i would recommend it if you really like crusader kings 3 if you haven't played crusader kings 3 and you're like, man, I should check out that DLC that Seth has asked or that Seth has talked about. Go play Crusader Kings 3 first before you buy the DLC because then you may be like, I don't like this game at all. (laughs) It is a very um, niche genre of games that uh, not everyone can have patience for. That's fair. To go back to the comment earlier about me having a great laugh that sounds like a game show, we're going to talk about a game that is a game show. So this episode's dedicated around Smash TV, Mostly the arcade game, but it's also known as Super Smash TV for that for the ports. Yeah, we're primarily going to probably focus on the arcade game because the ports of the game aren't that much different. Besides no. some content that we're going to talk about toward the end, the the arcade game and the the various ports that are available for it they're they're pretty actually consistent beyond graphical quality of some of the ports. Some of them being for like the NES versus the Super Nintendo sort of deal. So we we have uh, a joint memory, Zach and I. I played Smash TV. We technically played Super Smash TV at Retro World Expo in the hotel room while we waited to get food. Yeah, we were waiting for our dad to text us to let us know that he was nearby. And we were like, okay, cool. And we played a bunch of Smash TV. Uh, Then we got a game over and then we played NBA Jam. That's right. That's right. And then Seth dunked on me. (laughs) I, I did dunk on you. I feel like we've got to the first boss and beat the first boss in smash tv we got to the first boss we beat the first boss and then we uh got a game over i think when we got to the second area yeah. because we got through the like bonus thing that comes after the boss where you collect all the prizes we definitely fought and killed mutoid man who is uh, a trip and also probably the boss that most people think of when they think of smash tv which we'll we'll talk about the bosses later on in the show now to get into the history of smash tv smash tv as a game i will say doesn't have a lot of history behind the development of the actual game Uh, but i do want to take this time to talk about this the creator of smash tv and some of the work that he did on previous games smash tv was created by a guy named eugene jarvis jarvis grew up with an interest in uh computers in high school he attended a one-day course in fortran programming that was being conducted by ibm when he attended the university of california berkeley he began to program on mainframes. The first video game that he remembers playing was Space War, which ran on a computer in the basement of his physics lab. Following college, he went on to apply for Atari, though he did not
not end up getting a job at Atari. Oh, that's sad. He ended up getting a job at Hewlett-Packard for a bit of time, and he hated that job, so he quit, and then he got a job at Williams, the pinball company, uh, and he started in the late 70s. In 1978, Space Invaders was released. Not by Williams, uh, by, by Taito. Jarvis then became inspired to work on a game of his own, and he started to work on a project with Steve Ritchie. Ritchie was a former Atari employee. In fact, Steve Ritchie was the 50th person that was hired by Atari. He was early days Atari. He designed popular pinball machines such as Firepower and Black Knight. Firepower was notably interesting because it was one of the few pinball games at the time that would do multi-ball events. So like multiple balls would come out and you'd have to deal with that. As a just a quick fun fact aside, uh, Steve Ritchie would later go on to become the announcer for Mortal Kombat 2 and Mortal Kombat 3. He was also the voice of Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat 1. Richie and Jarvis's first game was Defender, which was released in arcades in 1981. Defender is a side-scrolling space shooter, so you can kind of compare it to something like, uh, maybe like kind of like Galaga, except it's from a side-scrolling perspective as opposed to a uh, upward-scrolling perspective. So it's left to right as opposed to up to down. Defender's also like arguably quote-unquote open-world, in that you can like fly around in any direction you want on the screen the only goal is to defeat all the enemies that are uh, on the screen but you can take them in any order defender became incredibly popular and the arcade cabinet actually sold over 55,000 units worldwide and earned over one billion dollars it's a lot of money especially for an arcade cabinet i mean so that's the gross so i'm assuming that's not only just a combination of the value of the cabinets that were being sold to arcades because they obviously had to buy the cabinets but it was also a combination of the quarters that were getting raked in yeah so that's that's a lot of money yeah so generally there's two equations when it comes to the arcade cabinets there is sold values for the arcades and generally if you hit around 50 to like a hundred thousand if you hit a hundred thousand units you're gangbusters right if you're hitting like 50 60 thousand you're very 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 successful and then you do your revenue is like uh like a billion dollars so that would be quarter revenue right yeah which primarily goes into the pockets of arcades unless they lease the machine which a lot of arcades did at the time arcade cabinets were expensive so it was cheaper to lease the machine then you give a portion of your profits to the leaser anyway jarvis ends up leaving williams to form his own company vid kids in 1981 vid kids would soon create stargate which was an enhanced sequel to defender because defender was very popular so might as well make it again except better and it would go on to be published by williams and in 1982 vid kids would go on to create robotron 2084 robotron 2084 or mostly called robotron because saying 2084 a bunch of times is kind of annoying but it was a multi-directional shooter set in the year 2084. In the game, you control a character from a top-down perspective and you walk around and shoot bad guys. And the game uses a control scheme that's commonly referred to as a twin-stick control scheme. And that is one joystick, usually the left, controls the movements, and the other joystick, usually the right, controls the direction of the bullets. So you can end up shooting uh, and moving in opposite directions, which is always fun. 
so you can like flee and be shooting behind you. And Robotron 2084 would be one of the first games to have this type of twin stick setup. Robotron was built on a Motorola 6809 processor and displayed in a 19-inch CRT monitor. It had a custom graphics coprocessor, which was able to generate the on-screen objects and visual effects. The game did very well, selling about 19,000 arcade cabinets and was highly reviewed at the time. However, despite the game's success, the market wasn't doing super hot in the early 1980s. In fact, 1983, the video game market ended up crashing, and Jarvis took this time to uh, go back to school. Since the video game market wasn't doing so great, he was going to get himself an education and went on to get his MBA, which he gained in 1986. So after getting his MBA, he returned to doing what he loved, making video games. The game he would go on to release in 1990 would be Smash TV. This project partially came about due to Hasbro pulling the plug on a project that pro programmer Mark Termal was working on. After the project fell through, Termal moved to Chicago and recruited artist John Tobias to work on what would become Smash TV for the Williams Company. Termal had been a huge fan of Robotron, uh, which was something that he definitely didn't keep private, and he was incredibly excited to get to work with Jarvis. Together, they were developing this new game. According to an interview with Jarvis, Termal was obsessed with doing a twin-stick shooter, and particularly wanted to do a Robotron sequel. While they weren't necessarily able to create quote-unquote Robotron 2, they did, in a sense, create what could be considered considered a spiritual sequel, something that takes the ideas of Robotron and perfects them in its own way while being an entirely different game. John Tobias, who did the art for the game, had experience previously working as a comic book artist, and Smash TV would be his first major game project. Using what little tools he had for developing art on the hardware that was available, he visualized the characters and designed them pixel by pixel. He would then create each character's rotations in the two 2.5D world they were created that they were creating pixel by pixel. So he would have to single-handedly create these artworks pixel by pixel to get them to look perfect when they were rotating on the screen. Which nowadays is probably a little easier to do than it was back in the late 80s, early 90s. Jarvis really wanted to make the game graphically impressive, as it did have to compete with other arcade games that were coming out in the 1990s. Jarvis's last game was a game called Narc, uh, and this game was incredibly controversial due to the graphic violence that was depicted. However, he didn't have any concerns about this, and he decided that he was going to make Smash TV even more gorier and even more bombastic than Narc would ever be. From a technical standpoint, Smash TV ran on the Midway Y unit board, this board was also used for games like Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Total Carnage, which was also by Eugene Jarvis, and we'll talk about it a little later, and the Midway Y unit board was also used for Mortal Kombat. Look at that, all these little tie-ins to Mortal Kombat with the guy doing the voice and this, this board being used. Now, the board itself ran on a TMS 34010 CPU, which clocked in at 6.25 megahertz. The TMS 34010 uh, is a notable CPU because it was designed to include graphics-oriented instructions. Thus, the board did not require a graphical coprocessor like the one that Robotron was using. So now this board would be mounted into cabinet, and the Smash TV cabinet is gorgeous. 
the bottom of the cabinet where the controllers are, you have your twin sticks, and the the cabinet play area is split between two players. So because you have you can have two players playing the game at one time. So there would be you would have contestant one, and then you would have contestant two. And next to each of the uh, joysticks. It would say whether the joystick was for moving or for firing. So it would say move, fire, move, fire. And then underneath, there was an arrow pointing to what your contestant looked like, which is actually pretty helpful because there was a blue character and a red character. So you can kind of look down if you got confused at like which character you were playing, which can happen in a kind of a high energy game like smash tv and the characters they were both dudes and they were both shirtless and they wore these helmets that look like they were on american gladiator it's like these like foam helmets that like had chim straps yeah they look very silly and they both are wielding weapons and under the crt there is two cameras that kind of like you're like looking from behind the cameras and you're kind of like watching the game in front of you it's kind of like how the design is set up and then of course there's the header with the smash tv logo the announcer whose name is evil mc and his uh two ladies that go with him everywhere and they're video recording the uh one of the contestants and it's just it's a very 90s game so the game does have a story about it and why why you're in a game show and the story it takes place in the grim dark future of 1999 where earth has been completely conquered by the new order nation have no fear though television is still a popular pastime and on that television the subjugated people of earth are watching the world's most popular television show smash tv on this live studio game show the contestants must go through room after room while mowing down thousands of people with various weapons to win fabulous prizes such as a vcr or beef some great prizes to win after killing thousands of people. The host of the show, Evil MC, has some really iconic voice work in the game where he says things such as BIG MONEY! BIG PRIZES! This host looks like a very bedazzled sleazebag who's flanked by two buxom blonde women at all times that are scantily clad. The game takes a lot of inspiration from the movie Running Man, which came out in 87, where uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is part of a game show where criminals runners have to escape the death of, from professional killers however in smash tv you you're going room to room just mowing down these people in like an endless sea of enemies so it's kind of like running man but also kind of not because running man is more of like a thriller-ish type movie where arnold schwarzenegger is trying not to get killed smash tv you are killing people <laughs> i know the game also pulls some inspiration from movies like robo cop which also came out in 87 particularly in the dialogue that you hear from the sleazy host uh, one of his lines is i'd buy that for a dollar which is a direct quote from robocop they also say total carnage i love it and uh, we'll explain why that's kind of funny. In terms of the gameplay, uh, there was a lot of inspiration from Robotron 2084. In fact, Smash TV maintains the twin stick setup for the game, with the left joystick being used for movement and the right joystick being used for shooting. This allows for total control of movement and shooting direction. So if you want to move the character upwards and shoot backwards while fleeing, that's all possible. Uh, which is useful in a game like Smash, with endless enemies swarming at you, so you really got to be quick on 
on your feet and make sure that you coordinate movement with attack. The game can also be co-op, with a second player playing, and when there are two players, the level scores are compared against each other at the end of the level. There are three levels, and each level ends with a boss. The first boss is Mutoid Man. Mutoid Man is, as Seth had mentioned, probably the guy that you think about when you think of Smash TV. Like, I would say if your only experience with Smash TV is playing up through the first boss, you've you've met Mutoid Man. Mutoid Man is this large torso, like, massive. Like, your character looks about the size of his fist. And Mutoid Man is this massive body attached to a tank. So, like, like tank treadwells and uh, in this just massive body instead of where the cannon would be. And he shoots lasers out of his eyes. He's also bald and he kind of, looking at him he just kind of looks like a jacked professor x <laughs> i'm reminded that um the conehead skit from snl this particular picture gives me like professor x or kingpin vibes like <laughs> yeah. like but like 1990s spider-man cartoon or those the uh, villains from the x-men arcade game and not only is he just kind of bizarre looking he's also notoriously difficult to kill while you're fighting him different parts of him will break off and he will just keep fighting you until there is nothing left but like a blood splatter of on the tank itself so even his his like entire body will be gone besides the tank and he'll still be trying to mow you down he fights you by really just running all over the place and shooting lasers out of his eyes not only are the lasers lethal but if you go anywhere near him he'll crush you he also has like two guys like stationed on his on his treadwells with guns that will shoot at you <laughs> <laughs> they're tiny guys <laughs> i don't know where mutoid man came from but he he's pretty fun i the part where he like as like he continues to fight you even as he's like falling apart though that's like a smash tv boss thing that you'll go to find out after fighting mutoid man that all of the smash tv bosses do this the second boss is a massive green face called scarface so he doesn't look anything like tony montana or al capone he looks kind of like shrek <laughs> uh, to the point where seth had actually sent me a picture of scarface but it was someone had photoshopped Shrek onto it. Scarface will break apart as you fight him and will shoot out multiple energy balls from his quote-unquote scar face. Yeah, it looks like he's vomiting energy balls at you when you fight him. I just feel bad for him, though. Mutoid Man, I, you know, at least he's got, like, arms and he can go about his life. Scarface is just, like, a, a face shoved into, like... He looks like, um, what is it, Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles without the body. I was gonna say... Modoc. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, it could be a little Modoc-y as well. I get Modoc. He has like a really tiny too. body, but you can't see it because it's underneath the his big head. The third boss in the game is actually two giant snakes called Daikobros. They move around the screen, though their bodies will stay anchored, um, and you can only hurt them by hitting them in the face. Uh, they shoot laser beams out of their mouth, and they also will throw mines at you. Both things that snakes are known to do. <laughs> After you defeat Daikobros, that's not the end. You keep playing the game, uh, and you kind of go back into playing smash tv like the different areas where you're fighting just like little bosses or little enemies versus a big boss and you get on to the actual final boss of the game who is evil mc himself and he looks like mutoid man but instead of mutoid man it's evil mc's body on top of the tank treads and it's weird but it, it's not i mean it's not weirder than mutoid man but it's for sure a, a situation 
situation where it, because now it's like this human guy in like a like a suit attached to a tank with also little guys like me toy man had and he shoots he shoots laser beams as well but his laser beams are stylized to be his eyeballs and it's like multiple eyeballs copied over and over and over again instead for his laser beams it's kind of gross uh after you defeat him you get lots and lots of presents and the your final score is tallied throughout the game there are different secrets uh in each of the areas there are hidden exits that could have different pickups in them and including keys and if you collect all the keys and you have a really good score you can actually open a thing called the pleasure dome now the pleasure dome is a epileptic inducing room full of flashing colors and a pile of bikini clad women scattered throughout uh that you can pick up like cash like in previous areas you can just pick up cash and it just kind of flies up into your score that's what you could do with these bikini clad ladies in this room that's flashing like pink and yellow and just bright flashing colors now in the original arcade release there was not a pleasure dome However, the game talks to you about finding all of the keys to unlock Pleasure Dome, even though there is no Pleasure Dome. And that's what it was. Originally, it was just talk. It was just a lie that the developers had the game show people tell your character to get you, the player, to continue playing the game. Now, people don't really like it when they are given an empty promise, so people complained, including the arcade owners like the cabinet owners and the people playing they were like what the hell you're talking about this pleasure dome and it's not even there they complained so much that midway who distributed and published the game had to go and reissue a revision to the rom for the arcade cabinets that would actually include the pleasure dome where if you were good enough as a player you could actually access it and because it seems like it was rushed out the door it's probably why it feels like a phoned in experience from the developers where you like go into this room and you're like oh it's just like flashing lights and it, it, there's just like these bikini ladies that you can pick up they could have done a lot more with it i feel like if they actually decided to include it with the original game i mean they pretty much got called out for not having it and they were like guess we gotta have it now, the game was successful in our, in the arcade format, and it was successful enough to be given ports to various systems, and we'll go into that when we talk about kind of like the legacy of the game. However, actual sales information for the sales of the game was pretty difficult to come by. However, in the 100th issue of Electronic Gaming Monthly, it was rated 6 out of all the arcade cabinets out there, not 6 out of 100. They, so the 100th issue of Electronic Gaming Monthly is a weird issue issue they did their top 100 games and then within those they had top 10s and in one of those subsections of those top 10s they had top 10 arcade cabinets of all time where they ranked them and smash tv came in at number six if you're curious it was beaten out by nba hang time double dragon gauntlet 2 daytona usa and Street Fighter II Turbo Hyper Fighting, which came in at number one. Now, this was November of 1997, so I think being number sixth in this arbitrary listing after being on the market for seven years is uh, pretty good. 
With the game doing as well as it did, Smash TV would actually see numerous ports and releases to various home consoles of the era. It was specifically released on the NES, Super Nintendo, Game Gear, Master System, Sega Genesis, the ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, Amstrad CPC, Atari ST, and Amiga. Everything got Smash TV. Some of the home consoles, like the NES, actually allowed players to use the second controller as the shooting direction. Thus, you could keep that twin-stick feel despite playing on a controller. On other consoles outside the NES, um, they would actually remap the buttons in order to duplicate the feeling of a second joystick. So as an example, on the Super Nintendo version, the D-pad would control your movements while the actual face buttons, so like the X, Y, A, B, would work similar to how the right joystick would function. Smash TV would go on to inspire another game, Total Carnage, uh, which I've mentioned a few times now, and as we mentioned, is actually something that MC would actually say. Total Carnage is another twin-stick shooter, which was also published by Williams in 1992 and created by Eugene Jarvis and programmed by Mark Termel. Um, however, it is not considered a sequel to Smash TV. It's just a game that's heavily inspired by Smash TV. Smash TV itself would later see re-release in various arcade collection packs. Uh, the first being in 1999, it was included in the arcade party pack for the PlayStation. In 2003, it was included in the Midway Arcade Treasures, which was released on Windows, Xbox, PS2, and GameCube. It was also part of the 2012 compilation Midway Arcade Origins, and it was also made available through Xbox Live Arcade service on the 360. The 360 version was actually the first version that allowed players to play the game online, which was really cool. However, this version was eventually delisted in 2010 because Midway Games dissolved. And that's Smash TV. That's Smash TV. We smashed that. Yeah, I mean, I think for final thoughts, Smash TV is a very fun game. If you've played Smash TV and like Smash TV, I highly recommend Xeno Crisis, which is like Smash TV, but like aliens. Though, if you have not played Smash TV, I also recommend Xeno Crisis, but I also recommend Smash TV. You should go play it. It's a great game. Uh, again, you can find it re-released on various consoles, but I'm sure you can find a copy uh, for the Super Nintendo or Genesis, potentially through via emulation that you can easily play. And what's uh, fun about Smash TV is it, is it holds up because of the art. Someone could release Smash TV on Steam and people would be like, this is a great indie game. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a game that while probably some of the humor might be a little dated because I think the nature of game shows is so much different now than it was back in the 90s, especially when you had game shows back in the 90s that I think were a bit more, kind of a bit more goofy in terms of the prizes that you would get. I don't, I don't think even, I don't even think it's the 90s. I think it's really game shows that were inspired in the 80s. Because yes, the game yeah, was released yeah, yeah. in 1990. So really it was these 80s game shows that had like American Gladiators is really kind of something that comes to mind, which was an older game show. Yeah, yeah. And I think you don't have that kind of culture that you had of the game shows of the 80s nowadays. I mean, there are still game shows, but I think it's just a different culture uh, in terms of how they play and what the prizes are like and in just how they are. Now, uh, we're going to get into our Byway Pass, which sure. uh, I think is a good I think it's a good place to go. Well, at the end of the episode, it's the only place to go. That's true. Or we could just roll credits, I guess. Ba, 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 ba.
So, Zach. So, Seth. This is a new adventure in a franchise. It's a first-person perspective. Okay. You will be able to freely explore a 3D environment, and you will have to collect things to solve puzzles. Would you like to know the name of the game? I would like to know. Dying, 1983. (laughs) We're going to take a short break while Zach looks this up. And we're back. So Dying 1983 is uh, a game apparently part of the Dying franchise, which I have never heard about, uh, being developed by Neccom and published by 2P Games. It's supposed to be, quote unquote, coming soon. It is a first person horror investigation game. So it's set in a hospital and some sewers and a prison. It just kind of looks like your typical horror game. It's tough for me to say whether or not I would want to play this it's got some cool elements i think like there's like some weird monsters and stuff that i see that they 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 have um such as like an eyeball with legs and this like looks like a a woman wearing a traditional japanese outfit but her head is an, an eel uh so there's some like weird monsters and stuff in the game which actually which actually that i like if it was just like ghosts i would not be into this game but the fact that there's like weird creepy creatures kind of makes me a little more interested in this game you know i think i'm gonna surprise seth because i think i'm gonna say i'm gonna wait on this I want to get a better idea of it when it comes out. Because right now there's really only like a trailer and some screenshots. Uh, I would really like to see some like proper gameplay of maybe like a reviewer playing it. I don't really want to watch like the gameplay they put out because that's going to be, you know, specifically edited to try to sell you the game. I kind of want like an unbiased look at what the gameplay looks like so I can get a better idea. But this might be something that might be worth looking more into when it gets closer to spooky season and I want to play particular type of game so i'm gonna put it down as a weight seth are you interested about your game sure your game seth is a 4x game uh, real-time strategy 4x being developed by the people who actually worked on Northguard, uh which i know okay. is a pretty popular real-time strategy that's been out in the past few years this game however is set in space Um, specifically on a planet that is in constant turmoil between various kingdoms who are are looking to take control of this planet due to a certain resource that the planet produces. However, the planet is also a hostile territory. Uh, Not only are there creatures that live within the grounds that will destroy the hard work that you're putting into it, but you also have to deal with the people who also live on the planet who might not like you encroaching on their territory. So not only are you now dealing with the environment of this planet but also trying to balance the politics that are surrounding this planet and learning how to uh, lead your faction to take control and dominance so that in reality you can take control over the universe yeah what's the game called dune spice wars Ooh, we'll be right back in just a moment We're back. 
So Zach is definitely more of the Dune fan out of the brothers. I enjoy Dune. However, I really enjoy Dune in video game settings versus like books or movies. Well, you haven't read the books, right? I've never read the books. I've only seen parts of the made for TV miniseries, but I've played a lot of the RTS and I like the Dune world. So like this game actually is interesting to me because I like the Dune world in a video game setting. I think it makes a really good video game setting because it's a complicated world, but video games make it easy. Uh, and I think it, not to take from your your opinion on it, but I think that it, it also lends itself very well to a 4X real-time strategy. Oh, for sure. 100%. If it was to be made into a video game, a 4X video game would be the game to make it into. I think the tabletop, there's a tabletop game of it. I think it is a 4X type of tabletop, like worker placement type yeah, of I'm pretty board sure game. Is, yeah. I have not played that game, but I would not say no to playing it. Um, I would say no to purchasing that board game. But I might not say no to purchasing this video game. So I'm going to put it down right now i think i'm gonna do this i'm gonna put it down as a weight then when we go to pax later this year we will go to shiro games's table and i will play this because it will be inevitably demoed and if i like the demo then i will pick it up sounds good Uh, or i'll buy it sometime in the indeterminate future because i want a new 4x game yeah, makes sense. All right. All right. And that's going to be our show. That will be our show. Now, if you are interested in getting in touch with the Classic Gaming Brothers, you can contact us via our email, classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us via our social media. We're available on Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, and Twitter. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are all Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Uh, you can also listen to us on any of the various podcasting applications. So be sure to rate us, subscribe, ring bells, do all the things that you can do to uh, let us know that you like the podcast and definitely reach out to us if you do have any comments questions or suggestions Uh, we do take suggestions from the audience uh, occasionally for episodes we previously did that with a past episode actually literally last week's episode was uh, an audience suggestion be sure to send in your suggestions we'll be glad to take them Uh, anyway that's all that i have unless i'm forgetting anything seth am i forgetting anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>